Hi, it's Fraser here. Before we get into this week's Spiked podcast, I'd like to remind you all about Spiked supporters. Spiked supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked supporter and get access to a number of exciting perks. Spiked supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop, and bookmark articles as you browse. This is all our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free, and yet so many of you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us. We're so grateful for that. If you don't give to Spiked yet, then now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com forward slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spiked supporters account. That's spikes-online.com forward slash supporters. Now, on with the show. Hello, and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers, and with me as ever, we have Spiked deputy editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, vaccine passports, woke homophobia, diversity managers, and more. So the government has finally made up its mind that it is going to introduce vaccine passports for nightclubs and other large venues or crowded indoor venues. Tom, what have you made of this decision? Well, they seem to have made this decision. As you say, uh, Prime Minister Spokesman this week said that they're going to come forward in the next couple of weeks with some concrete proposals for it. Uh, We were told this was coming, but I think there was always an assumption, and I said it myself, that this is probably just going to be a bluff um, Mm. because of the fact that the vaccines had broken the link between hospitalisations and deaths and because there was a pretty concerted effort to just try and drive up vaccine uptake amongst particularly young people um, and particularly those kind of harder to reach um, sections of the population. Um, but it seems, at least for the moment, that they are planning to go through with it. I think it's particularly nonsensical now, given all that we know about the Delta variant mm. in particular. So in recent weeks, because of various studies going on in the UK, US and elsewhere, that um, the number of breakthrough infections, as they're called, people who have been double vaccinated um, but still managed to become infected and also managed to pass it on, is higher than we would have liked. You know, As we're seeing in so many different ways, the Delta variant, because it can spread so quickly, is kind of overcoming a lot of our defences, even mm. the, the best defence we have, which is the vaccine. It's not to say that the vaccines don't work. They do work. They really protect you against hospitalisation and death. But if your concern is about having a load of people in an enclosed space and the potential for them to spread it, whether or not they're double vaccinated isn't the guarantee that we thought it might have been a few months ago. So all of this, you just get the sense that um, they're basically just dug into this policy now and they have to implement it in one way, shape or form in order to show that they were serious about it, even as any rationale for it starts to unravel. But you always have to remember what this comes at the cost of, which is all the civil liberties points, which we've you know gone blue in the face making on this podcast for the sake of maintaining their bluff. They're going to have to infringe upon all of those freedoms. Well, that's the point exactly, Tom, isn't it? I mean, as, as we've said a million times before, they're authoritarian, would turn us into a kind of papers, police society. They're divisive in the sense that they divide society into the vaccinated and unvaccinated for no reason. And now the scientific case, the public health case has been completely obliterated and yet it persists. It's just that it feels incredibly procedural, even the timing of it, because we're now, I mean, if you think about, we've had the summer, which is when most people are going to be going out. I mean, the main thing that's going to change in September, October time in the next few months is that schools will go back and Mm. universities will go back. Large number of universities are keeping with 
uh, online only lectures. So it's not like you're mm. suddenly going to have freshers week with people spilling into clubs. There's no logical even reason to bring it to, to make this decision now, other than you feel like, is he being shamed by Macron's health pass? Is Boris Johnson feeling the pressure elsewhere? There's no, you know, it, it just feels incredibly tick boxy, which as we've said for many times on this podcast and throughout the pandemic has been one of the greatest evils of the restrictions and that it's one thing to bring in something that you think is necessary in times of emergency. But now at the tail end of the pandemic, when people have, as Tom was saying, loads of people have vaccine protection, but there's this question of the Delta variant, it doesn't make any sense. And it's been made the case in a number of places, even actually, thankfully, some of the um, papers and commentators who were very, very much pro-lockdown and really hardline on this are even themselves now saying, that if you're looking to target people who haven't been vaccinated, bringing in these kind of basically mandatory vaccines by the back door, because if you're saying you have to have a, a vaccine to enter into areas of society, it's going to put people off getting it. And that's the main thing, getting those people who haven't been vaccinated yet vaccinated. And yeah. it seems like a barrier to that. Do you, do you think it's really the French example that has set the tone here? I mean, um, Macron very famously has, you know, there are lots of other examples in Europe. I mean, there are some US states that have gone down the vaccine passport route, but Macron and France have gone way further than anyone else. They're, you know, you have to present evidence of vaccination to have a coffee yeah. in a coffee mm. shop and go on a train to, you know, travel from one city to another. And it seems to have worked in the very narrow sense that more people have got vaccinated. Yeah. You know, when Macron made his announcement that no jab, no freedom, essentially, the booking site for vaccines crashed. And this was in a very kind of vaccine hesitant country already. Yes. But isn't there a kind of broader problem? I mean, doesn't there, in, in the long term, doesn't it undermine trust in public health? And in France, there has been a huge backlash. There's been, you know, seven weeks at the time of recording of in a row of massive protests, many of them with over 100,000 people at mm. each demo. So are we just looking at the short term? Are we just copying other countries? I mean, what's really going on? Well, I think the first point is that even if something works doesn't mean you should do it. I yeah. mean, that's the, the, the number one point. The other thing is that in question of people not taking up the vaccines, first of all, it's different country to country, but also it's quite clear that you have different issues there. You have people who haven't got round to it or are a little bit hesitant in that way that people are just a bit risk averse about mm. putting something in their bodies or whatever. They need to just be reassured. And then you've got a kind of more hardcore um, anti-vax through to... Pro- you know, very conspiratorial in some cases. And the question is whether or not this is actually going to help. Now, obviously in France, the vaccine hesitancy, anti-vax sentiment was a lot bigger. In the UK, it's a much more slim problem. And the question is when we're dealing with a much more discrete problem, are these measures justified? I don't Mm. think they're justified in any case, but still it seems like using a sledgehammer to crack a nut. But at the same time, will it work? I think in our context, you know, it's a very different set of circumstances. First of all, because the vaccine passport system is nowhere near as draconian, so therefore it's not as much of a big stick to wave around in quite the same same way. Um, but also because of some of the evidence that we've seen. The Guardian had a report out this week on, on a study. People, they reckon, would be actually put off by the threat of vaccine passports. Um, there was also a report the other week, or it might have been this week, about um, there being about one and a half million people who didn't come forward for their second Pfizer jab. Yeah. They don't really know why. So again, I don't think it's a, first of all, whether or not it works is besides the point. You have to have some um, semblance of principle in this discussion about bodily autonomy, about how the state should relate to the individual, all of those very important things. But I don't think it's a cut and dry case that it will work. Um, And also considering the fact that the Delta variant has completely changed the game. Yeah. You know, we're at a position now in the pandemic where 
particularly in the, on the question of vaccines, we really are talking about personal responsibility and personal choice here. To a large extent, all those arguments about saying you're selfish if you don't get it have kind of melted away because of the fact that you can still catch and spread it if you are vaccinated. It's about your own personal protection. And so in that instance, the whole rationale again completely unravels. So will it work? I feel like it won't, but also for what at this point, really? Well, it's a bit like that if you make it impossible to go into a nightclub unless you have a vaccine passport, it's likely that young people are... I mean, that's what's happening in France. If you make mm. it impossible to move without a vaccine passport, then of course you're going to go and get vaccinated. But it's also really frustrating that the government here has given up on previous tactics. Like, remember all those pilots early on in summer where you had events of, okay, so, you know, quite a few of them were outside, but I mean, events with thousands of people that even that nightclub event yeah. where there was no question about vaccine passports there. It was all based on testing beforehand, testing afterhand and having various other measures. And it was very successful. I remember us talking about it on this podcast, the fact that there was a handful of cases after those. The, the whole success of that seems to have been forgotten. Also, the question of shielding and the differentials of how this virus works has also been forgotten because they, you know, I'm feeling nervous about the Delta variant coming back around again. Not for myself, because we know that being double vaccinated protects you and uh, from the symptoms of COVID, but for the bounce back into the elderly. And rather than, you know, at this point, rather than saying we will penalise this very quite small section of society, I mean, clubs in Glasgow have been pointing this out. It's not pubs, it's not restaurants, just nightclubs. Penalising a very small section of society like this, for the sake of what? It doesn't even hold up with the other arguments of protecting the NHS, of protecting the elderly, those laudable things that we were doing throughout the pandemic. It feels very much like the government's given up and really is doing this to look like it's doing something serious, which is pathetic and dangerous for civil liberties. Is it, I mean, I guess yet another example of how perhaps Freedom Day was not quite all it seems. You know, we were talking a bit about this um, when it was announced. It, it was, vaccine passports were announced on the eve of Freedom Day, unfortunately. Mm. And we know in a few weeks' time, or as schools are going back, things are not quite back to normal and there are threats of bringing back some of the pandemic containment measures. As you've suggested, Ella, you know, universities are not going to be fully in-person Again, you know, are we just still, after all this time, after all this effort with vaccination, unable to put the pandemic behind us? Well, I think that's it. And I think that's the big problem that we're confronted with is that really to declare that this is over is just requires a shift in mindset, hmm. really. Um, it's to try and unpick that level of fear in the population that was engendered at the beginning of the pandemic. Also just willing to kind of leave this behind us to let it kind of settle into the mix of um threats and health threats that exist in society that need to be mitigated given that over the past 18 months we've been focusing myopically on one particular issue um i think it's you know the opinion polls being what they what they may i think you kind of sense in society nevertheless that people are starting to relax a little bit i think that's probably behind the fact that there's a lot of people who aren't coming forward and being vaccinated or missing their second vaccination it's because that level of threat is kind of dissipating a little bit but at the same time when you've got a government which it seems like more than anything is terrified about public opinion um, as yeah. they can narrowly read it, are therefore incapable of leading on this, which is to say that, of course, COVID hasn't gone, gone away. It's never going to go away, but we're about as safe as we ever could be and we need to get back to normal life. We need, as you say, to leave this behind us. They're incapable of showing that level of leadership, really. I mean, you kind of feel that they're just hoping that um, events will pan out in such a way that they can... Um, be behind public opinion in, in making that kind of statement. But you do have to lead in situations like this, yeah. especially when they set the terms of the debate in the first place and set that level of fear and threat in society at the beginning of all of this. 
If you're anything like me, then you're probably tired of mindlessly browsing the internet, scrolling through social media, or watching whatever video some algorithm has recommended. You want something genuinely new and exciting. That's why I've been loving Wondrium. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M. It's the streaming service that my brain can't get enough of. It has so much to explore. I love it. Wondrium offers endless opportunities to learn something new with thousands of hours of video and audio content. It's got fascinating documentaries, helpful how-tos, and answers to every question you've ever had. And if you're familiar with The Great Courses Plus, then you already know Wondrium. It's the same great service, now bigger and better. You're going to love it. Lately, I've been really getting into the Wondrium series, Crimes of the Century, a selective history of infamy. It's part murder mystery and true crime, but it also gives you that all-important historical and cultural context. For instance, I never knew just how close a single murder in the 1920s of film director William Desmond Taylor came to destroying the reputation of Hollywood, potentially changing the history of film forever. I know how much you're going to love Wondrium, and so Spiked has arranged an extra special offer for all of our listeners. You can get a free month trial of unlimited access if you just go to our special URL, wondrium.com slash spiked. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash spiked. Think about how much you could learn in a month. Just go to wondrium.com slash spiked. So we talk a lot on this podcast about the many clashes between feminists and trans activists, but there's also a kind of conflict emerging between gay rights activism and trans activism as well. So we saw it this weekend, Alexander Bramham, a gay man who was wearing a t-shirt in support of the LGB Alliance, which stands for lesbian, gay and bisexual rights. And he was at a protest and he was booed and jeered with the chance trans lives matter. Tom, do you want to tell us a bit about this very strange episode? Yeah, so it is very strange. So we, we interviewed him on Spike this week, or Paddy Hannum interviewed him on Spike this week. And so he showed up at this protest, which was against Manchester Pride, the kind of organisers of Manchester Pride. So there was a lot of LGBT activists there. Um, again, the usual um, complaints about the fact that it becomes really commercialised mm. and all the rest of it, mismanagement, not enough money going to charities, all that kind of stuff. So he wanted to go as a supporter of the LGB Alliance to show support for this, basically. And according to his account, um, whilst there are a few people who were kind of asking questions earlier on in the day, it just turned nasty at one point where one individual came up to him and started shouting at him. And the footage is quite remarkable. You know, he gets completely kind of pushed out of the crowd. He mm. then has to, um, he seeks out the police who kind of lead him away whilst everyone kind of jeers at him and um, chants trans lives matter over and over again at him. And what was interesting about it also was the kind of aftermath. So you had Owen Jones, you had Pink yeah. News, you had various different kind of outlets basically sort of celebrating this pretty ugly spectacle. And you have to think what it was that he, what, what it was that was being jeered about here. Because the LGB Alliance, if you listen to Pink News or Owen Jones or whatever, they basically act as if it's a, a hate group, like it's a far right organization when ultimately it's a, it's an old fashioned gay rights group, which is gender critical. It's concerned mm. about the way in which gender recognition undermines the Equality Act, um, sex based rights, all the rest of it. Um, to suggest that membership of that organisation in and of itself makes you a transphobe, in and of itself means that you're not really part of the community, quote unquote, and should be pushed out if you try and represent yourself at an event like that. 
just shows the level of intolerance that exists in this discussion. I mean, I think it's fair to say it's going to be on the part of a small number of activists. I think there'll probably be a lot of people at that protest didn't know what the LGB alliance yeah. was. You know, you might have to be very into the kind of internecine kind of uh, politics of this to fully understand that. But the way in which just for making those pretty reasonable points, I think, and for also saying, um, as Simon Fanshawe and other people involved in, in the kind of gender critical wing of the gay rights movement has said that they just feel like LGB issues are distinct from T issues, if you like. They are treated as if Nick Griffin showed up. Yeah. And I, and listening to him and listening how just reasonably is how much he was kind of falling over himself really to say that this isn't about trans people, we need to have dialogue and all the rest of it. If that becomes a hateful proposition at this point, it just shows you how toxic this debate has, has got and how much there is one side really, let's face it, who is trying to enforce orthodoxy on this basis. I mean, Ella, there is a conflict there, isn't there, between saying essentially that gender is entirely a social construct, that it's something that can be, and, and you know, even sex is a social construct, and an idea like homosexuality, where you're same sex attracted to someone. Yeah, I mean, this on the face of it, you look at this and you, you'd be, you forgiven for thinking it's kind of like those sort of lefty in faction fightings, but what's that Monty Python joke People's about? Front of Judea, yeah, Judea and People's Front. Yeah. <laughs> But is it, as Tom says, it's more serious than that because rather than this being your kind of um, average uh, sort of uh, intersectional politics infight where you are having to pick through the weeds of which group represents what, there is a concerted effort to crack down on people who are critical of the idea that um, trans rights and more importantly, the idea that sex is something that is can just be thrown about um, one thing one day, another thing another day and is a social construct and completely fluid, that those people are bigoted and the word bigot was thrown at him mm. in the crowd. Um, Pink News and others were published articles celebrating the fact, quoting people saying that it was brilliant that a bigot was kicked out of the crowd. Uh, it's really important to state that the LGB Alliance has never said anything about endangering transgender pe- people's lives, about uh, limiting their rights. It's got charity about, status. Yeah, like, yeah, 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 much to these people's chagrin, but yeah. And it's annoying that you have to point it out, but you do have to point it out because the way in which they're talked about is so biased. But for the, for the conversation, and, and people who are campaigning for trans rights in that very small um, way on usually on social media, which is very intolerant of discussion. It's very kind of hardline about the idea of um, sex not being real and all that kind of thing. What they often say is that they are just the modern iteration of the gay rights campaign. They draw a line from the marches that happened in the 60s, 70s and 80s, right up to the multicolored, multifaceted flag of the LGBT plus thing now. And actually what they're saying is, as you've pointed out, Fraser, is very different because whereas uh, freedom around sexuality was always something that was championed by gay rights activists, the idea that you should be free to love who you are, actually the whole born this way argument was mm. often um, forefront of the centre of arguments. Now there is a kind of a desire to, in a bid to chase fluidity, a desire to almost in some cases eliminate the idea of difference uh, differentials between homosexuality between gay men between lesbian women and we know that the kind of push in particular among young people to suggest that any young girl who's a bit tomboyish or any boy who's a bit um you know who likes wearing dresses it really is as crude as that should transition in a way that i'm sure makes many lesbian uh, women and gay men feel very uncomfortable because it's 
as they have put it, and many commentators have put it, eradicates their way of understanding themselves and eradicates their way of life. Rather than this being, you know, at a time when there's lots of discussions about gay rights, particularly uh, globally about the importance of pushing back on uh, bigotry or inequality, rather than coming together in a kind of genuinely um, inclusive argument for freedom around sexuality and freedom around expressing your gender, the um, vicious end of the trans right activism side of this seems to just want to alienate people. And that's unfortunately what they did to this man on this march. Yeah. And, and the, you know, the fact that it isn't a continuation of the gay rights movement has been underlined by people like Simon Fanshawe, mm. the fam- f- founder of Stonewall, by the actor Simon Callow, who has come out and criticised um, many of Stonewall's stances. And he himself, you know, uh, echoed this worry you mentioned of, um, you know, young gay boys potentially being pushed down the trans path. In fact, um, you know, this is an adult concern as well. Katie mm. Herzog appeared on um, the Brendan O'Neill show this week and she's talking about many of her lesbian friends who have miraculously, you know, all of a sudden decided to transition. Many of them all, all at a similar kind of time. They were once, you know, radical lesbians who hated men and now they are men. It's a very kind of interesting social contagion that we should at least be able to debate about but yeah. those in at least be able to talk about but those in the kind of trans camp don't want that discussion and it is rehabilitating like homophobia there's mm. no two ways about it I mean, you see this particularly with the discussion about um, genital preference which is a strange phrase but mm. still this kind of idea that um lesbians who don't want to sleep with trans women in possession of a penis are um bigoted and there was actually a really good discussion about this on andrew doyle's gb news show on the weekend and we had two um young uh a young gay man a young lesbian woman respectively talking about this and not only does this kind of echo a lot of the things you know all she needs is a good shag you know if you don't if you don't happen to you know be attracted to someone then there's something wrong with you i mean these are pretty obvious echoes of some very ugly bigoted arguments from previously but also the kind of unpleasant pressure this heaps on particularly young people was a point that kind of came up you know people are still kind of potentially coming to terms um with their own sexuality suddenly find this whole new politics and expectations kind of layered on top of them it can be really damaging surely and you just think if nothing else you should be able to talk about this and all of the participants really in this discussion aside from a handful of people genuinely do just want to have this discussion they have concerns as we said previously a lot of these people would be natural allies of the trans movement if it hadn't been captured by this very extreme gender ideology Mm. um but that just seems like it's impossible to take place. You dissent at all, you're a hate monger. And I think that's what the stories from the past week have definitely demonstrated. Are you looking for the perfect gift for the pro-freedom, anti-woke person in your life? Then look no further than the Spiked Shop. You can now get your favourite Spiked slogan on a t-shirt, hoodie, tote bag or mug, including ban nothing, question everything, love Europe, hate the EU and cancel cancel culture. And if you're a Spiked supporter, you can get a 15% discount on anything. Just go to spiked-online.com forward slash shop to browse our items and make your purchases. That's spiked-online.com forward slash shop. So we often talk about the NHS as if it's a kind of unofficial state religion but there are many other values, especially in the kind of woke era, that are really getting the same kind of religious devotion. One of those in particular is diversity. So we're living at a time when the NHS has record high waiting lists. And yet at the same time, it's forking out a hell of a lot of money on diversity managers, some of whom will earn around 75 grand 
a year. I mean, this is pretty strange, possibly <laughs> even quite shocking. Tom, what have you made? It's really interesting because obviously, as you say, I mean, this there was a couple of these job descriptions that went viral this week, and when you think about just the amount of um, importance, obviously, placed on these roles, as you say, kind of making more than your average junior doctor, you think something very strange is going on here. Something you also think something very strange is going on here when you think about how diverse the health service is. Mm. You know, um, the health service um, medical staff. I think I'm right in saying is about fifty percent white, whereas the country is about what eighty six percent white. Yeah. Um, Asian people in particular are um, overrepresented fourfold, I think, as opposed to the population. And so what are these diversity managers there to do, really? Yeah. I mean, and you suspect that part of this is just about the general kind of ideology of diversity, which is very much about managing workplace relations. And it's quite ugly way, the idea that you've got basically irreconcilable communities who need to be constantly um, tutored through their engagement with one another in some way, shape or form. It's not about driving up the actual diversity because it's an incredibly diverse sort of place. Yeah. And so not only, as you say, it just shows that even in an institution which has a very practical point to it, you know, it's there to look after people, it's there to provide healthcare, even there, um, these other kind of political concerns, and they, they, this is political at the end of the day, um, start to seep into it. So even if this can happen in the National Health Service, it shouldn't be a surprise that it's um, taken over practically every other institution in the country, I guess. And, and we've seen, you know, a lot of the woke politics creep into the NHS and presumably this is the work of these uh, diversity managers. I mean, earlier this year, a leaked uh, A to Z glossary of diversity, equality and inclusion terms um, was made available to the public accidentally, I suppose, and now it's private talking about things like white privilege, talking about intersectionality, talking about transitioning, all that kind of stuff. I mean, Ella, what do you make of this? I mean, it's supposedly the NHS is meant to be rational and following science and, you know, to, in order to give people the best healthcare. Well, I think it's incredibly insulting to staff. I mean, this is, for me, first and foremost, really a, a worker's issue in that the suggestion of having these diversity officers or, you know, over, people on oversight boards is to police what staff are doing and police their interactions with their patients and any overworked nurse or doctor or cleaner or you know anyone uh, uh, you know administrator in the NHS knows that when they are dealing with patients it's one of the most personal things you can do and uh, unless you meet the odds kind of asshole most people working in the NHS are angels and they will do anything to accommodate you and anyone who's been to hospital recently knows that even during the worst periods for the NHS throughout the pandemic People are there, they care. That's their whole role. And so they're not going to uh, call you the N word. They're not going to misgender you on purpose. All these things that are, are now sort of at the forefront of um, these kind of diversity schemes attention staff are already doing and have been doing for many, many years. I mean, you also made the point in your article this week, Fraser, that, you know, the eye-watering sums that the one was at 75, yes, 75 grand a year. year. I mean, I don't want to make the penny pinching any NHS argument because it's boring and it sort of often misses the point. But on the radio this morning, you had one of the CEOs of NHS providers who's kind of in charge of these trusts coming on and begging the Chancellor saying, in, unless you give the NHS more money, um, unless the government funds us, people will die from not getting care. And so that there's cognitive dissonance mm. there between paying extortionate sums to people who do sod all really, other than, uh, you know, tell people what to say and what not to say. Welfare for the middle classes. Yeah, and then you have nurses and, and doctors and cleaners and all the staff who actually deal with making people better and keeping the place clean and sanitised and safe are on pittances. So mm. it's, it's really quite sickening in that regard. And the, the NHS is not, the only example, obviously, of this kind of, you know, 
institutions going into woke overdrive, but also it's not the only example of an institution that feels the need to make, to become more diverse, even though it is already diverse mm. or perhaps even more diverse than the country itself. I mean, the BBC is in a similar position. It's a similar thing going on in the advertising industry, in the TV industry as a whole. The Bank of England is is um, explicitly setting diversity targets that are higher than the population mm. as a whole. I mean, what does this tell us? I mean, does it just say this urge cannot be satisfied, that there's no level of diversity that's yeah. ever enough? Well, I think it, it shows as well that it's not really about diversity as the kind of uh, lived experience of that in a workplace, in society, whatever else. It's about mm. the politics that's become attached yeah. to it, really. Um, as you say, there's the quotas thing. There's a part of this which just becomes sort of virtue signalling. I mean, even, even a quota that was bang on the percentage of the population would be a quite weird sort of racial bean counting yeah. thing to do. You know, if there are obvious barriers that need to be addressed, they should be taken down but at the same time the idea that you get perfect representation in all spheres of life is ridiculous can, and can lead some quite patronizing and divisive policies to try and um you know correct that but again it's there's there's more to this as we know it's about pushing a kind of identity politics mm. it's about um pushing a form of racial etiquette in many instances it's about communicating the right quote-unquote values and as much as we might blanch at it when you see it happening in the health service even the fact that pretty much any arts institution you could think of is basically paid up to this stuff is weird. Like, why would all of them basically speak with one voice on issues of identity and all the rest of it? So um, the unanimity of thinking amongst all these institutions is quite striking. And I think that's what this is about, really. The quotas and stuff, that's just kind of virtue signalling by the sidelines. But really what it's about is the is the uh, domination of this, this kind of politics and the way in which it's seamlessly <laughs> just been able to take over all of these kinds of institutions almost overnight, it feels like. Right, and let's finish on uh, Geronimo, the alpaca. Can we get a health update on him? What's happened? He's, he's with the angels now. He's no more. <laughs> that's, that's why we're dressed like this. <laughs> but, um, it's, a sad, it's a sad thing. We should, we should stress that, it, you know, it's sad for Geronimo. It's sad for his millions of supporters and all the rest of it. But it, it was a very strange time. There's no two ways about it. I can't remember a sort of period of protracted uh, controversy over something which, while sad was cut and dry. You know, yeah. we talked about it a few weeks ago. He did have bovine TB that did threaten other animals and that also could have um, threatened livestock and farmers and their businesses and all the rest of it. He did take two tests. It yeah. was quite clear that he had to go. It's a sad business. But I think what's interesting about it and what's ridiculous about it is just the, the way in which you see in this, also the Penn Farthing case, just the way in which um, a very vocal section of the public seem to care about animals almost in the absence of any of those other more practical concerns but also in relation to human beings i mean the people who were sent by defra to go and deal with him you know they, they were met by this kind of crowd of jeering people firing water pistols at them you know that it was live streamed to try and shame them you know that to kind of cover their identities and all the rest of it um so it, just the amount of kind of vitriol which was unfurled at people who were just doing their job yeah um for something which did have to happen i think just showed how slightly wonky uh some, uh, some of our kind of feelings towards kind of these issues and animal rights issues is at the moment that's right i mean it's sad but common sense has been restored ultimately yeah but then there is a lack of common sense when it comes to dealing with animals because while the geronimo thing i think was obvious to lots of people that and even in terms about cruelty i mean dragging the poor animal around and it running i mean the daily mirror reported it like it was a war zone like you know <laughs> yeah. and all the other alpacas were kind of looking at the side and this kind of thing. Well, it was a, it wasn't a very pleasant way for the animal to go 
because it was full of stress. So you could make that argument. But when you compare it with the pen farthing example, where you have, you know, people with the ear of the prime minister, like Carrie Simmons, rumored to be involved with somehow getting this kind of crony um, project by pen farthing with his um, animals in Afghanistan to charter a plane that could have been filled with people at a time of serious crisis, you know, uh, you know, people are dying, people are queuing up in sewage, in sewage, is just unfathomable. And the more important thing to ask is the reason why Penthouding is a great example is who goes through combat, who sees things, the horror that you would see in wars, in war zones, the difficulty of, of human suffering, and then set up a charity for animals. I mean, it's, it's like the kind of when you watch the donkey um, home adverts in places where people are still living in abject poverty. There's a real challenge now to the idea, I think we made this point on the podcast a few weeks ago, of the of uh, human superiority and prioritising human life over mm. animal life. I mean, in particular, the the fact that the animal sentience bill is going through um, the House of Commons and the House of Lords, I think, at the moment. We could be marching into quite a difficult scenario for making distinctions between where animals are less valuable than human life. And that doesn't make you some kind of horrible, cold-hearted person that, I know we laughed at the start, but no one cheers about animals dying. It's unpleasant. But also- It was the was, circus that was It was, yeah, it was the yeah. pantomime yeah. of it. But it, but it's also saying at the end of the day, when you have to make a decision between human life and animal life, I think you're morally corrupt if you don't side with human well, yeah, life. It, rescuing hundreds of animals while leaving- you know, a similar number of humans behind yeah. is the colder and crueler position. Yeah. No question. And, and, you know, and even, you know, because people say, oh, they were going to be in the cargo hold, whatever. Just the amount of time this took up. Mm. The fact that you had Ben Wallace, you know, is issuing kind of Twitter statements into the wee hours. The amount of calls that MPs were reportedly having to deal with. Even that and the fact that you've got, you know, a runway, um, yeah. which you're trying to charter flights out constantly to get people out. Suddenly, this is something that has to be dealt with. I mean, even on that basis, it's obvious that this was completely wrong. But the the example I always go back to is Harambe. Was yeah. that 2016? Because that, I think, was when you really saw a lot of people had lost the plot. So, of course, this kid falls into this gorilla enclosure. Then Harambe, the gorilla, starts dragging him around. And, of course, someone shoots the gorilla to save the child. And there was that justice for Harambe petition. It got yeah. half a million signatures. And it was caught not only saying that this was terrible and Harambe shouldn't have been killed. I don't know, they should have wait until he fell asleep or something. I don't know what they were suggesting would happen. Tranquilized him. Tranquilized him, I, I guess. Obviously, you know, there wasn't time for that kind of thing. It was a split second decision yeah. and the right decision. But also saying that um, basically the ultimate responsibility laid with the child's parents. And it was explicitly calling for the authorities to look into this family to work out if these kids were safe. I mean, this... It, this is your brain on animal rights, I yeah. think it's fair to say. And, you know, Geronimo is a, is a bit of a sad example, but Harambe, also sad, but even more crazy, I think, in relation in terms of our relationship with animals. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.